This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope you're well. Thank you for all your lovely messages about Friday's episode, our little documentary on how to really make a mess of a reshuffle. Uh, it was nice to hear from you all. And a hello to Ryan McCullen. He is in San Francisco, listens to the podcast at the gym. Love the pod, although it does make me laugh out loud, which is occasionally a little awkward. Well, we do our best, Ryan, we do our best. Coming up on today's episode, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Every political party in government talks about it, but what is the reality? We take a look at how safe our streets really are and the government's latest plans to crack down on criminals. But first, we kick off as ever with our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. So we'll come to theatres and culture and all of that in a moment. But Libby, I'm really taken by your column in The Times today about uh, moral superiority and this idea of some people thinking that because they are goodies, then they can't be guilty of doing bad things. Explain yourself. Well, it sparked off from the awful story, the way that big charities and the UN are so reluctant to police sexual exploitation because these are good people, they're good causes, they're better than the rest of us who just go around making money and getting on with our lives. And it sort of ballooned out into that great Francis Spofford book about why actually, whether you believe in God or not, the Christian way of accepting that we're all sinners is not daft. And I was raised on convent school stuff about your daily examination of conscience and knowing there'll always be some little sin of some size because that's just how human beings are. And we have this amazing delusion now of virtue signalling and empty words and these claims to be compassionate or dedicated to public service without a qualm, you know, and Harry and Meghan prating compassion and throwing the Queen under the bus and <laughs> poor old Cameron. So I just thought, well, nervously, I'll have a go at the subject. And... Um, admit there's probably some sort of sinful thoughts in it as well because there always are aren't there <laughs> but I, but it also made me think of uh um, jeremy corbyn as well the, the, it, when he was leader of the oh. labor party because he was a nice man in the view in the eyes of uh, uh corbynistas and he'd he'd campaigned on this and he'd campaigned on there was no way he could have done anything bad when it came to uh anti-semitism 
Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the trouble. We've all got these flaws and we've all got these wrong think things in ourselves and we've all got these spikes. I mean, you just have to look at Twitter and see the extraordinary vitriol of some of the caring left. You know, if they come at you for not being caring enough, you know, it's, it's sort of pistols at dawn and it's absolutely um, extraordinary. And But it is something we have to watch in ourselves all the time. I mean, all of us. And the nice Spufford point is that basically the Christian point of view of sort of saying, actually, yeah, we all need forgiveness to some degree uh, is not an unhealthy thing, whether you are a believer or not. Uh, so I just thought, let's let's drag that one out and see what happens. What do you make of this, uh, Rachel? This sort of the, the people on the moral high ground, and it, you know, particularly in the case that, um, as Libby was discussing, the the people working for aid charities, some some way convincing themselves to do that they were able to do appalling things because they were there, you know, in the pay of of charities doing good things. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? But I think actually this is really what's wrong with our politics at the moment, because it used to be the case that people on different sides of political debates could have an intellectual argument about something, they could disagree, but there was a kind of sense mm. that you respected the other side, whereas now both sides or all sides seem to take the kind of so much the moral high ground they see themselves as the only virtuous ones uh, and the opponents are the enemy the evil doer the devil so therefore it's impossible to have any kind of compromise because if you're good the other side's evil how can you possibly come to any kind of arrangement between you and you definitely saw that with the hard left and Jeremy Corbyn over anti-semitism that they couldn't understand that because they thought in their mind they were noble and campaigning on behalf of the Palestinian cause, that that, that then somehow morphed sometimes into anti-Semitism. And I think also you see it on the right. So you've got Oliver Dowden today um, and over the weekend ah. calling for, um, you know, on the one hand, they want free speech at universities and insisting that everyone must be open-minded and be able to say what they think. But on the other hand, he's saying that um, museums and galleries must follow a certain rules and the government-ordained view about uh, British history and the empire. Uh, and there's this sense that instead of being able to have a debate about everything, the, the government saying, we're right on this, you're wrong, we're good, you're bad. And it's just another version of the same thing on left and right. It's become far too moralistic and it's not kind of rational. Yeah, this um, this is Oliver Down, the Culture Secretary, saying that Northerners should be included in prominent positions on cultural boards <laughs> to erode the bias towards woke values held by a liberal London elite. This this idea that sort of you know the 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 board of the National Portrait Gallery meets and in the corner there's someone with sort of a pigeon under one arm and a whippet under the other and a flat cap <laughs> saying oh I don't I'm not I'm not sure about this. Um, but it's kind of virtue signalling of another kind. Yes, isn't it? exactly. So the the exactly. woke warriors, you know, that they the Tories but just, but, I but they're the kind I of just Brexit, don't believe it's Brexit true. Brigadiers are just as, um, extreme. <laughs> But I, I just don't think it's true anyway. I mean, I, I'm never, never happy about ministers dabbling their meaty paws into cultural institutions anyway. Um, but I mean, I've been in a cultural bubble. I was 10 years a trustee of the National Maritime Museum. And I can tell you, there were a lot of different opinions around that table, uh, you know, from the Duke of Edinburgh down. And I think this is probably the case in most institutions. I think for every virtue signalling, boring old wokey, there will be a retro sentimentalist who absolutely hates what this person's saying. 
saying. And I think the idea that the government would somehow balance it out with the pigeon and the whippet in the corner is <laughs> both hilarious and rather sinister. The, the, Oliver Dowden's piece in the Telegraph, Sunday Telegraph was, was quite something. He said, heritage institutions should be free from government meddling. But the people who run them need the courage to stand up against the political fads and noisy movements of the moment. It then goes on to say, that's why I want to make sure that the boards of these bodies are generally diverse and not so, so free from meddling, apart from the good sort of meddling, which is my sort of meddling. Um, whipping... They have no sort of self-knowledge, do they? It's very, And it is just as much virtue signalling as the woke warriors, because they are saying, you know, we, the Brexiteer brigadiers, are, you know, we're championing our values. Um, but actually, it's just as moralistic as the wokies, as Libby says. Just to turn your column, but I love it when I love it when you get a you, you get a sort of slightly different slant. I did an interview the other day with Vanessa Redgrave, the famous old workers' revolutionary party lefty, and I asked her about the statue thing, and she doesn't think statues should be knocked down at all. She says they should be up there so everyone remembers. And and you know I, I love I love this that when, when people sort of veer off what you think they might say. Oh, life and, is much um, more interesting when that's the freely. case. Yeah, yeah. Just flipping your column completely sort of uh, upside down, uh, Libby. The, the um, the sort of cancel culture and one person, who, somebody who otherwise might be a good person, is judged to have done one bad thing, and then that sort of wipes out anything else that they might they might have done. It sort of does cut both. And I, I'm not really talking obviously here about the child abuse of mm. um, by people working for for charities, but the sort of everyone. Uh, must either be a goodie or a baddie, and one bad thing uh, apparently cancelling out uh, an entire life's work. Yes, I, I, that that is quite extraordinary to me. And of course, what it is is the people who are doing the cancelling cannot understand themselves the if if you want the Christian word sinfulness of their intolerance. Uh, of, they they just they don't they don't get it. They think they are absolutely right, and therefore you know, their cause, trans, whatever it is, is so right that you must absolutely demand complete recantation and um, uh, and so on from the, the person who, who disagrees with you. It's the inability to disagree politely that is something we have to get back to somehow. You know, uh, radio stations are responsible for helping do that too and uh, doesn't do it too badly in your case. Yeah. Very good. It's because we're just in the mushy middle. That's why somebody somebody tweeted that this morning saying that we, I was slap bang right in the middle, which is I'm totally happy with that. Uh, <laughs> others others can do the could do the extremes. Um, one other thing I wanted to discuss this morning was um, uh, this question of whether or not Olympians should skip the queue for jabs. There's, and there's lots of pressure for uh, different people, from, you know, whether it's in different parts of the country or different jobs, to start getting vaccinated. Uh, but the uh, Cabinet Minister is urging Boris Johnson to rush oh. Olympic athletes and the British and Irons Lions rugby team to the top of the vaccine priority uh, list uh, so they can go off and do their thing. What do you think about this, Rachel? You know what? I'm absolutely happy for them to jump the queue. And I think, um, you know, I don't think, I don't want sort of rich businessmen or politicians or anyone else jumping the queue, but these athletes, they're going... They're going abroad to um, race or whatever or for their country, play for their country. Um, and I think it's absolutely fine for them to get the jab. And most of them will be too young to have got it in the order uh, of age that has been ordained by the government so far. So I think uh, if these um, events do go ahead, which I guess the Tokyo Olympics is, um, they're saying it will go ahead, but it's looking a little bit rocky isn't it but uh, i do think they should have them actually i don't think that i think it's not that controversial i don't think most people would mind <laughs> maybe libby disagrees 
I do. This, this is wonderful. We're having one of these polite disagreements, Rachel. I'm so enjoying it. I think I think it's the most abominable idea. Uh, I mean, to waste vaccine on a hollow prestige project like like Olympic teams is abominable. I mean, it, it prioritises them in hotspots like Bolton for people in crowded multi-generational houses where some of the elders are hesitant and haven't had it. There are people very much needing prioritising for vaccines at the moment. And Olympians, I mean, at the very back of the queue. I mean, it <laughs> Oh, for heaven's sake. You know, they're so young, they're fit, they're well-nourished, you know, they're, they're in no danger at all. You know, it would be completely a sort of, it would be a prestige thing to do, and I think it's sick. Wow. Come on then, Rachel, come on, fight back. Fight, 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 fight. <laughs> Politely. The new Harry Hill speaks. But I just think they're they're going. They're not choosing to go abroad on holiday. They're going to um, compete for their country, and I think it's completely legitimate for them to have the vaccine. And most other countries in Europe and the US have given their athletes the jab as a priority. Um, and also, bear in mind, I, I remember interviewing Tom Daly, the diver, actually, and he was making the point then if he did get COVID, it would be hugely de detrimental to him because his lungs are so incredibly important to his sport. Um, so these athletes who need to stay fit and healthy, I think they deserve the vaccine. Well, there we are. Look at that. Disagreeing politely. Let's see if we can end on a, on a slightly more uh, consensual note. Oh, we were talking about the fact that um, theatres are reopening and cinemas and, uh, and everything else uh, today. Libby, obviously, you've been reviewing theatre for how many years? Oh, over 10 years now, yeah. Yes, so... Um, I'm, I'm going to the cinema tonight, I have to say. I'm going to the cinema tonight. Oh, what are you going to watch? couple of theatres coming. Going to watch The Dig because it's all filmed, well quite a lot of it is filmed or pretending to be filmed around where I live and Sutton Hoo and all the rest and I, I want to see it on a great big screen um, and so I'm going for that and I'm going to go and see something, I'm going to go and see, um, what's it called the uh, Nomad, what, Nomad Nomadland. Land. Going to see that, that in a couple of days and I've got a couple of theatres coming and I have no fear. <laughs> I have no fear at all. There's a great gloomy, morbid piece in the stage at the moment. Uh, I think it's in the stage saying that actually it was always unhealthy going to theatres. You're always likely to catch something off the guy coughing behind you at the ballet. Um, you know, it's always been the case. <laughs> I thought, well, what a cheering thing to say right now. <laughs> what about you, Rachel? Have you got anything booked? I haven't, but I want, there's a new James Graham play coming up at the Young Vic. Yes, really I discovered that yesterday. It, sat, yeah, it looked really so good. that's exciting. Yeah. But I'm most looking forward just to seeing family and friends. I know it sounds slightly pathetic, but rather than going to any big events, I just want to see people uh, who I haven't seen for far too long. Yeah, that James Graham play, James has been on the, the show a few times, it's called Best of Enemies. Uh, yeah. And it's about uh, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley Jr., uh, so, it's, yeah, it's American politics. Obviously, he did uh, This House and Quiz. But and it's a, I think it's actually about divisive politics and polarisation. So could have thought? Yeah, it's very contemporary. <laughs> Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester, there you can read them both in the Times. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we get tough on crime. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, 
Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Red Box Podcast. Now, let's talk crime. Our Conservative Party is backing those who put their lives on the line for our national security. So as we renew our place as the party of law and order in Britain... Let the message go out from this hall today. To the British people, we hear you. To the police service, we back you. And to the criminals, I simply say this. We are coming after you. That's Priti Patel there uh, addressing a, a room of Conservative Party activists when such things were allowed. But it's not only the Conservatives focusing on crime today. Labour are also announcing their plans for the release of a green paper on violence against women and girls. Now, if you look at the polling, about 90% of people say they are safe, they feel safe walking on their local streets, according to YouGov's regular trackers. But less than half of people now say they have confidence in the police to deal with crime. That's the lowest since the tracker began two years ago. 23% of people say crime is one of the top three issues facing the country, up from 10% at the start of the year, we're now back to pre-pandemic levels. And 38% think that the country should be spending more on crime and policing. That rises to 58% among Tory voters who think we should spend more on the police, compared to just 21% of Labour voters who think the same. So today we're going to look at the party's plans for crime and the state of crime today. In a moment, we'll speak to former Chief Constable of Durham, Mike Barton. We've also got the Times crime correspondent, John Simpson, joining us. But first, let's speak to Jess Phillips, Labour's Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. Morning, Jess. Morning, Matt. Uh, what is it the government... Uh, not the government. What is it the Labour Party are <laughs> announcing today? So the Labour Party has today released a 27-page long document about how uh, we would and would suggest that the government do also uh, would tackle the scourge of violence against women and girls in our society. It is a broad-ranging document that covers sentencing, policing, uh, how our criminal justice system works, but also how victims interact with housing, welfare, how education and online environments are also, I'm afraid to say, harming women and girls in our society. And so what, what would you like to see done? Let's talk sort of, sort of actual uh, real-life examples of, of changes that you think uh, would make a difference. Well, there's a huge amount of things that would make a difference. And in, in the document, we cover, you know, 
endless amounts of uh, suggestions. But one suggestion is uh, when I have to listen to Pretty Patel there talking about how she's coming for criminals, well, she's not coming for rapists because under her watch, the conviction rate for rape has dramatically dropped. It has been dropping and dropping for years. It is at a terribly low rate and the vast majority of people who come forward uh, to say that they've been raped, both women and men, uh, but it's mainly women, uh, what they will find is that their case won't even ever get inside a courtroom. And so what the Labour Party is proposing in this circumstance is a huge uh, effort um, for police forces to be better, to be better resourced and have better facilities for serious sexual violence for the CPS uh, and the judiciary to have specific training for there, be, for there to be specific courts, um, specialist courts that handle these things, and for victims to have the proper support to stop the 40% of victims who drop out before court, whether that's through independent sexual violence advisors, but also having legal representation, because I think most people think that a victim has a lawyer and a perpetrator in a court, a defendant has a lawyer, but in fact, a victim doesn't have a lawyer. A victim is merely a witness and a piece of evidence. And it's just simply not good enough. And it's leading to terrible conviction rates that the government have done nothing about. The document also lays out that we would want to have targets on the government around these things because... At the moment, they just don't do very well. They stand on platforms and say they're tough on crime. While yesterday, I had to talk down from a ledge uh, a rape victim who has been handled terribly by the system. And that is an everyday occurrence for me. How much of this is down to resources that actually, if you if you keep uh, cutting it, you know, after 10 years of austerity, uh, yeah. uh, the system uh, is stretched and therefore the amount of support that's there, uh, the amount of time that can be given to cases is affected? Well, it's undoubtedly there is a resources element to this. The you know you, the vast majority of people coming forward about domestic and sexual violence into our system, let alone street harassment or stalking, those people don't come forward um, because the system is just not built for them. There aren't the charges. But the reality is, is that you'll be waiting. I've I've known cases of up to four years to have your rape trial heard, and that is directly because half of our courts have been cut. There aren't the specialist units in police forces when they're promising twenty thousand police officers in the street they'll be taking us back to a level that we had at 2010 of course before they cut all the police forces and all the specialisms in the police forces went by in lots of places went by the wayside when resources were stretched the cps has been cut to the bone so the reality is is there is a resource issue but there is also fundamental problems with how our system handles victims that need to be addressed that wouldn't just won't just be addressed by more courts more uh, lawyers more police they need we need a fundamental change in how victims are treated within the system uh, um, what is it that because there's, there's if, if a case does go to court you said the, mm. you know the conviction rates are particularly bad is it a, a societal thing as well a cultural thing yeah. that doesn't believe victims and because of the nature of uh rape cases in particular there's often yeah. not a huge amount of evidence and it, it literally is he said, she said, uh, in law, or he said, he said, or whatever it might be. Um, so it's incredibly... It, it, do, culturally, do we need to change the conversation of what... Because it's very difficult, isn't it, for the government to, or, or any political party, sort of change the way society views these sorts of cases? 
absolutely. It, it, there is a fundamental where women are expected to tolerate a certain level of abuse in society. Um, whether and, and, and the he said, she said element of it, their word against yours, is a, a very, very difficult thing. However, we have got to build a system, whether that is in uh, our education, which again is in the document that we have produced today, and the policies that the Labour Party is proposing, is some of how we've got to look at how misogyny is dealt with in society from girls not being able to walk to school in their school uniform without being curb crawled to that when they're in school think you know sexist harassment just not their voices not being able to be heard there is a fundamental shift that has to be made where we don't just expect half of the population to basically put up and tolerate uh, a sort of degrading of our character based on our sex and do you think that the Labour Party is seen as a party that would deal with this? It would be tough on crime. It's obviously, you know, Tony Blair famously was tough on crime, mm -hmm. tough on the causes of crime. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in that clip, we heard Priti Patel talking about we are now the party of law and order. Do you think that the Labour Party is seen as a party which could could properly deal with these issues? I think that potentially not as much as we should be uh, at the moment. And that needs to be something that we absolutely lean on because today, you know, we have released policy that is far outstripped anything that was in the Queen's speech with regard to uh, some of the most serious violent offences in our society from murder, rape, that the government, I mean, murder last year of women was at its highest rate since 2016. How on earth can the, go the government claim to be the party of law and order when more women are being murdered under their watch? And I'm afraid to say, more men are also being well, murdered. Yeah, yeah, so actually, that's an interesting party. point. So someone's just texted in saying, uh, yet again, the Labour Party focusing on niche problems. Yes, domestic and se sexual violence is important, but so are lots of other issues. Why are they not talking about policing protests, immigration, knife crime, robbery, murder? They're actually making it about... I mean, yeah, I totally, you know, your, your shadow brief, um, the shadow yeah. minister for domestic violence. But murder is up right across the board, as you were saying. Men, more men and more women are being murdered. Do you, are you, do you accept any, at all the, the criticism that, that Labour sometimes focuses on these niche things rather than the broad appeal? I'm going to push back on the idea that women, who are 51% of the population, is niche. Um, it's, I'm delighted to be considered niche uh, as somebody who has been through our court system five times in the last year, in the last two years. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that my issues are considered to be niche. Also, 25% of all call outs, the highest volume crime on its own, is domestic abuse. So it, it's not at all niche. And to suggest that because I care about domestic abuse means that I don't care about other forms of knife crime is like suggesting to somebody who comes on to talk about the cladding on high-rise buildings that they also hate people who live in bungalows. It is a nonsense and I reject the premise. I care deeply about uh, knife crime. I am the mother of two teenage sons living in the inner city. I, it is, I am here today to talk about women. They are not niche they are more than half the population. Anyway, Jess Phillips, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Times Radio. Uh, Labour's Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding discussing those plans uh, as set out by the Labour Party. Taking a look at crime today because that's the debate uh, on the Queen's speech was happening in the House of Commons later on. Uh, let's bring in uh, Mike Barton, Chief, former Chief Constable. Morning, Mike. Morning, Matt. I hope I'm not your talking northerner. <laughs> 
Have you got your pigeon and whippet with you, Mike? That's the big question. Uh, they're parked outside, don't worry. Very good, very good. We're not making a lot of noise. That's obviously a reference to uh, the government's approach to putting a northern one on the board of everything, and not because that's in any way the policy here. Uh, we've also got John Simpson at uh, Times Crime Correspondent as well. Morning, John. Morning. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So explain, uh, if you can, for us, the, uh, the government talking about uh, the safe streets for all today. I mean, this bill, this piece of legislation, the Police Crime Sentencing in Courts Bill, I mean, that covers quite a broad <laughs> range of issues. Uh, what is it that the government's proposing, first of all, John? It's, uh, it's an enormous document um, that address. I mean, obviously, most prominently, uh, we've heard about the changes to laws around protests. Um, there's been a backlash against uh, restrictions on protests, um, particularly details in the bill that would make uh, it far easier to shut down protests for creating a, a, a nuisance, um, noise levels um, and a, a space around Parliament where protests would not be allowed to be held. Um, but actually, this document um, ha has far wider reaching implications. Um, it, it, there are changes to sentencing around um, the whole life sentences so um the premeditated murder of a child would automatically uh, be uh, receive a, a a whole life sentence as a starting point um there are changes to sentencing for repeat offenders making it easier to give them longer sentences um there are also some uh changes to custodial policy around children, diverting them from custody where possible, um, and formalisation of practice around digital evidence uh, to try to address some of the issues that we have around uh, disclosure where police are searching computers and mobile phones. And given your, um, your experience reporting on crime for The Times, how much of this is sort of addressing things which uh really need addressing and how much of it you know because obviously sometimes governments tend to do things because they look politically quite good or they're addressing public concern rather than reality what is the is there anything which is which you think well hang on that you know this is cracking down on something which isn't actually that big a problem right now or or particular issues which you think are are pretty urgent i think that there's always massive de debate around uh, sentencing whatever the crime uh, we 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 live in a very victim led um society which i think in many ways is, is correct um you know victims must be heard but having worked with a lot of victims and families of victims they will always want longer sentences for offenders um whether or not that is going to address the problems in, in a country where we jail more people per capita than anywhere where else in western europe um whether it's a policy that that, that um, simply wins votes or um, uh, addresses the, the the root of the problem is, uh, is another matter. Let's bring in Mike there. Mike, uh, you, Mike Barton, you were chief constable of uh, Durham Constabulary. How much when you were when you were doing that job? How much did you time did you spend trying to sort of? Uh, address that mismatch, mismatch between what politicians might say about what they were doing, they were cracking down and all that, and the reality of what you were dealing with on the on the, the streets of your area. Uh, thanks very much, Matt uh, and John, for your uh, praise on that. Um, crime has never been as low in the real world 
uh, certainly online, it's burgeoning and something ought to be done about that. But in the real world, violent crime now is half it was in 1995. And, and I know that's no solace to people who've been the victim of that recently. We actually did a survey of uh, victims, John, in Durham because we were looking at doing more restorative justice, trying to prevent the next generation of criminals coming out of criminogenic families. And we actually found that victims don't want longer sentences generally occasionally do, but generally what they want is they don't want it to happen to somebody else. So preventing crime is the critical issue. So we've actually got to look at what the kids are. So when Jess Phillips was talking about DV, domestic violence, not being a niche subject, she's absolutely spot on because when uh, children are brought up in households with domestic violence, they are far more likely to become offenders and have bad health outcomes themselves. So that's the sort of work we were involved in, Matt, where we were trying to be really smart and following the science to try and prevent crime in the future. So that's why I get really cross with politicians who say the rattle, say that they all want to claim the, the moral high ground of the party of law and order when actually, and they're talking about longer sentences, sentences have doubled in the last 10 years. Now the public don't realise that because the politicians tell them lies. And I was going to ask you about that because that, that's the thing is that you get successive Home Secretaries saying they're getting tough on this, they're cracking down on that. Uh, a, a, a particular issue flares up and it might be a trend or it might be one case uh, of um, one crime or another. And, you know, the cry goes up, something must be done. So the easiest thing is we're going to double sentences for X situation. But you're right, it might not act as a deterrent and it might not stop that person once they've uh, completed that sentence from, from doing it again. There's only one deterrent, uh, Matt. All the surveys in history have shown this, fear of getting caught. It's nothing to do with the length of sentence. Uh, and they found this out with hanging. So they all thought that hanging people publicly would stop people murdering people. Then they found out in the 1850s that uh, everyone except one person in the last 10 years who'd been convicted of murder had actually seen a public hanging. So they stopped hanging people publicly because they realised that wasn't the deterrent. So sabre rattling sounds good and some people might fall for it. But what really makes the difference is people fearing getting caught. And that's why I'm worried about the, the loss of 20,000 officers and the ones that are replacing them, that's fine, but they will be rookie cops in the first two years, certainly not specialists and certainly not detectives. And the one thing that I'm worried about is that deterioration in our investigative cap capacity over the last 10 years. That's what's worried me to, in terms of putting the fear into the criminal. And interestingly, um, uh, John Simpson, there was a story in the Times uh, last week, I think, about looking at sort of trying to forecast where there might be growth in uh, crime. Sexual offences and violence are due to increase by a fifth over the next two years compared with pre-pandemic levels. Uh, this was some uh, research by Polescope uh, with Crest Advisory, the Criminal uh, Justice Consultancy and Justice episteme uh, looking at the you know the, the crimes that have been uploaded and what might happen in the future drugs offenses public order crimes including harassment violent disorder affray been drunk and disorderly also likely to rise burglary which has been in decline since the mid-1990s it also uh, expects to fall by a third robbery also set to decrease so the sorts of crimes we're talking about are changing john yes and and we, we're having this discussion at a very strange point in time where you know, we're about to reopen society compared to, to last year. We're going to see huge increases in, in crime and, and police forces are going to have to model not on comparative data from last year, but from, from pre-pandemic levels. 
um, and try to to gauge those those patterns and the changes in, in the way that um, offending happens. As Mike mentioned, that online fraud, etc., is is um, expanding at a rate that we just cannot keep up with. But um, pre-pandemic, we were seeing increases in violence. Um, murder and sexual offences year on year for about five years um, and the way in which we combat that is going to define the next the next decade uh, what's your because obviously the government uh, if in doubt Boris Johnson and Priti Patel talk about we're recruiting 20,000 more police as Mike said a lot of that is replacing uh, police that were uh, cut before um, they need to be the right sort of officers and the right uh, covering the right sort of crimes as well. Don't they? The, 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 this idea of a bobby on the beat, people seeing more uh, police, doesn't actually make a huge amount of difference to uh, um, actually uh, cracking cases. I mean, there's a debate about uh, around visual deterrence in the street and, and seeing an officer. Um, there haven't been an awful lot of studies that that, that tell us exactly the, the impact on having officers um, on the streets, but. Yeah, I mean, in terms of proactive policing, uh, newly recruited PCs are not going to make the difference. Um, and forces for years now have been struggling to recruit the requisite number of detectives uh, to, to, to deal with serious and organised crime. Uh, Mike, just finally, if you were in Pretty Patel's seat or, you know, able to whisper in her ear... What would you actually say was is something that she could do to tackle uh, the sorts of crimes which are actually rising? Let's put it like headlines to one side. Um, how okay. do we how do we end up with fewer crimes being committed and fewer people ending up in prison? Half of all crime is now on the internet. If we if people selling cars sold them without locks and doors, there'd be an outcry, and Ford and Audi and the rest of them would have to put doors on and would have to put locks on. It wouldn't make sense. So how come Facebook uh, and all the platforms are allowed to make their platforms criminogenic. Why is Mark Zuckerberg not being in the dock of public opinion because he is allowing child abuse on his platforms? They know it. They could design it out. If it, They could design out a system where if you searched for child rape, it would be prevented and there would be all sorts of algorithms kicking into place. They don't. They choose not to. Half of all crime could be prevented by the social media platforms who now have more money than nation states. She should be doing that rather than milking that, that vein of public opinion where she says she's tough on crime. She isn't because they're doing nothing about online crime. Uh, and what about you, John? You, you spend a lot of time uh, looking into uh, <laughs> criminal trends and uh, and all that sort of thing for the Times. What would you What would you suggest to uh, Priti Patel if she picked up the phone to you? I mean, I think we a lot of what I deal with is is um, vi you know violent crime um, and and uh, the an increased focus on on domestic violence and and also non-policing responses to crime um and and it gets spoken about a lot and when we when we talk about street violence gang crime um a lot of the issues that police are dealing with day to day um don't start from a law enforcement perspective so uh whether whether you increase investment in youth services etc which have been decimated um whether we 
work on education programs that teach young men how to treat young women. Um, but it's yeah, stepping stepping away from the the sharp end of it and and seeing what we can do around um, uh, around the social issues that, that, yeah. that feed into it. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.